Matthew Panzerino, welcome, welcome back to the show. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Wow, it's a tough week to have a show. There's no news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we might as well just <laughs> shut it down. <laughs> Go on vacation. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, uh, it's been like that every day. So, we are recording on Tuesday the 31st, so we are literally talking uh, like two hours after Apple posted quarterly results <clears throat> so we can actually do like a news show it's like we're we're, we're like on on cnn or something talking about breaking news <laughs> right uh this week's news today or whatever yeah instead of yesterday uh summarizing the quarterly results uh i think it's I, I, my summary is more or less uh iphone went back to growth which was contrary to some predictions that that last year's dip was was the sign that that we'd reached peak peak iphone people say Mm -hmm. they sold more iphones last quarter than they've ever sold in any quarter including the two year ago one when the sales went bananas because of the uh iphone 6 and 6 plus uh Mm -hmm. ipad sales are down a little bit year over year but they're reasonably saying, well, last year they came out with the brand new iPad Pro. This year there were no new iPads in the holiday quarter. And they're still a respectable $13 million. Uh, Mac sales were up a little, uh, rebounding. I think showing so- good signs of probably the uh, the new MacBook Pro sales being pretty good. Uh, mm-hmm. Apple Watch, they don't break those out. But on the conference call, it sounded to me reading the summary that they said it was... Uh, a record-breaking quarter, and that makes sense because it's the holiday quarter. And I think that it's if if they did break those watch sales out, I think the qu- holiday quarter is going to be a, a huge spike, just like in the old days, the way iPods were. Uh, and then, last but not least, services—Apple's favorite word of the last two years—is up. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's some question about that other category and like the overall other category. There was there was a dip in growth, but right. the wa- like the general consensus is the watch did fine in the quarter. Right. Um, I mean, it's pretty much the only watch that's doing anywhere near decent right now, so it's not too hard to to say that. Yeah, and it seems to me like, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, this is a little off topic of Apple's quarter, but it's on point with the watch that I'm starting to see some serious uh, repeated pessimism about uh, Fitbit, that Fitbit, I think, might be, as a company, might be in trouble. Yes, yeah, I think that's pretty clear from what we've been hearing so far. I think that there's a significant change in direction what we refer to here in silicon valley as uh pivot right. uh coming for them um but yeah there's they they are definitely and i don't think anybody really thinks that it's completely about the products i mean i think there's plenty of quality issues they've had over the years and they've never been you know super highly rated as far as durability and longevity yeah. and quality and they've had a couple of like actual real problems with quality but i think it's just a tough category and they just didn't quite figure it out, you know. Yeah, it just it, it it's like it, they were you know they stand up uh, they stand alone as the only independent company that's making fitness trackers that that is worth even talking about. But it doesn't seem mm-hmm. like they got it over the hump. And it's I think in particular Apple Watch is is doing them in. 
that yeah that I mean in this casual market in this casual market of people who want to spend like let's say somewhere around two three hundred dollars to track their fitness yeah. it seems to me like Apple watch is starting to get real traction outside the early adopters you know market and I, I think it's at Fitbit's expense yeah I mean it's sort of the um, you know you bought a phone. I mean, it used to be, I mean, maybe, what, four or five years ago, you bought a phone to make phone calls and maybe write text messages, and you got all these apps with it, you know, you right. can do all this other stuff, and then you come to love that, and pretty soon you're not making phone calls at all. You're texting everybody with, you know, Messenger or whatever. But I think it's the same kind of concept, you know, so people are saying, hey, you know, now the price is getting to where I don't mind spending 200 bucks, getting this thing, and getting all these other things with it, but it's a great, you know, it's a solid fitness tracker that, yeah. that can do all these things, so... Yeah, it's a tough uh, category. And and as you mentioned, that Fitbit, you know, is treading alone on the backs of that one P&L, right? Right. So if you break out the Apple Watch as a business, especially that first launch quarter when it launched, I mean, that stuff takes ramp time, you know? Yeah. And when it's, you're relying on yourself and your own revenues and whatever, you know, venture capital, obviously, you have, you don't have infinite runway, yep. you know? Yeah, and I think... Uh, we'll come back to this uh, on another topic in a bit, but um, I, I'm as guilty of it, uh, well, maybe not <laughs> as anybody, but I know I'm guilty of it, and I think others who write about technology are <laughs> seriously guilty of uh, being too show, too focused on the short term and not realizing how long some things need to really get mainstream acceptance, you know, like just smartphones, period. You know, it was like, remember the, the, what was the initial goal? It was like 10 million iPhones in the first year of sales, something like that. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and there, mm-hmm. you know, they made it, but it, it's like, if you think about that now, they sold 78 million phones in three months this last mm-hmm. quarter. And whereas that, you know, back, when it first came out 10 years ago, it was, you know, we're hoping for 10 million in 12 months. It, it takes a long time, you know, and a part of it is just the simple common sense. And I mean, other people have written about it, but just there are people like me who will go and buy an iPhone on the day it comes out. But most people, even if they were curious, and I still remember it with the original iPhone where like people on the street would see me using it and they would say, without knowing who I am, they would just say, is that an iPhone? Right. And they were obviously aware of it. They probably have one now, but the, it took years for them to be comfortable to say, okay, I'll get one. Cause I've, you know, it, it, there's like a comfort factor of knowing it. And I think the watch is on that tra- trajectory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I've definitely had, um, it, right now it's, it's exited that phase for me. It's not like people see it on my wrist and go, you know, like, Oh my God, is that an Apple watch? But what they do say is oh you know i'm thinking about getting are you still using it yeah. right which is an interesting way to phrase it right and i think that that's partially from the narrative you know i guess you could call it media narrative or whatever <clears throat> that the watch isn't all that useful long term that there's initial an initial wave of like oh hey i'm poking around and then eventually you get tired of it and put it away and i definitely know that there are plenty of people that don't wear theirs anymore or whatever, right? There's going to be that with any gadget. It doesn't fit either what the company tried to sell you it was or what you know, whatever their success or failure in communicating what it was was or your own vision of how it would fit into your life didn't quite match up with how it actually did, right? And so I think that we've exited that phase 
And now we're in a phase where the people that are still wearing it are advocating in ways that are more specific. They're like, yes, I love it because X, Y. Yeah. Right. It's not like, oh, yeah, I love it. And then like, what do you like about it? Well, I look at all these things and this thing and that thing. I don't think we're out of that. And we're into, these are the practical benefits it offers me. Uh, oh, yeah, I have all my calendar stuff on there. Like, that's enough for most people. Or I have, you know, it's a great fitness tracker. You know, I, I go to the gym every day, or I, I cycle, or I swim, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. People are figuring out the things that work for them. And so it's, it's more about the precise benefits on an individual basis versus the entire you know, bolus of benefits that could theoretically apply to you, you know? And I think that 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 could be where the sustained growth is coming from versus the initial wave of who knows. Yeah. It's also true that, uh, I mean, we knew this. This isn't something we needed to hear from Tim Cook on the conference call today. You could tell just by going to the Apple store and trying to buy an Apple Watch that they were backordered for most of last quarter, uh, Mm -hmm. or still are, I think, uh, that you know they couldn't make them fast enough, which is a, a good sign, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think initially, you know, you never know whether they just didn't know how many to make or what, or whether they didn't know what the right mix was. Right. I think there initially there was a lot more people buying steel than maybe they thought, and so there was you know it's incredibly hard to get steel ones for a long time. But now I think they're getting the mix figured out. So if they have the mix figured out, that eliminates that. And now you are looking at, yeah, it, they're just having a hard time keeping up with it, which theoretically should be a good good thing. On the flip side, they aren't keeping up with it, so they're not selling as many as they could, which is you know not great for your shareholders or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, with iPhone sales rebounding and actually growing and breaking a record, um, it, 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 it even with that, even saying it's a record, it's clear it's it's a few fractions of a percentage you know i think i think it's 78 million they sold into one two years ago that was the previous record was like 74 million phones or something like that so the the years of raw raw 50 percent growth year over year are over and i think that you know common sense would tell you why it's because the smartphone is sort of a, a a a saturated product. I mean, not that there's no room for growth in, in in certain markets, but for the most part, over the last ten years, we've reached the point where m- almost everybody who might get a smartphone has a smartphone. Right. Well, I mean, I think it looks like there was some declines in China, um, but every other market grew. Yeah. Which is that's pretty solid. I mean, China is its own beast. You know, it's incredibly difficult to do business there, as Apple has found over the years, you know, and, and we only know the public stuff. We don't know the many challenges they've come up against with the government and everything else that don't quite make it to the page. Um, but outside of that, every other region was growing. And I think that people think of saturation and replacement cycles and things like that. The, the people that do think of those things are not... You, they're not communicating it well, or, or I should say that they communicate it fine in their, in their vein. But it's hard to characterize those things and turn them into very human you know, sentences or, or ideas or concepts for people that can help them understand where the growth is coming from and where the sustained growth will come from. Because it's like you could say, hey, you know, every, every X years, people are going to replace their iPhone, and that changes based on, you know, major design changes, right? <clears throat> so in a major design change year, the replacement cycle may be lowered by 30%. Uh, and then you can also go to like, 
you know, there's new people being born, so people are turning <laughs> what twelve or right. thirteen or fourteen now that were you know just born when the iPhone came out, and they're getting phones. So we're getting into like the first wave of like. I don't know, new iPhone consumers, first generation of new iPhone consumers. So there are lots of factors. It's a very like liquid thing. And everybody treats it like, oh, yeah, everybody has a phone, you know, has one, wants one, and that's it. But I think Apple is looking at growth in terms of all of these variables. And and the projections show, you know, revenue projection guidance wise, you know, it's like 51, I guess, to 53 billion, something like that, yeah. um, that they're projecting, which is not crazy high, but not light by any means. And so I think that, you know, I think that they feel that they've got the growth out there in those pockets. And I think that I I think a lot of people saw, you know, long story short, last year for the calendar year, iPhone sales were down year over year. The 6S seemingly Mm -hmm. didn't sell as or didn't sell as well as the 6 uh, and I say that my only hesitation in saying that is is my presumption that most iPhones sold are the the new you know the top of the line new model, and because mm-hmm. you don't know they don't, they don't break that down for competitive reasons. So in theory, right. you know they could have sold you know the iPhone SE could secretly be the best selling iPhone, but anecdotally it certainly seems that that doesn't seem the way you know, most people buy the 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 best one. Um, I think some people saw last year's slight dip and thought, you know, whether it was just to be dramatic and, you know, make clickbait predictions, but, you know, saw it as the beginning of a trend as opposed to the counter argument was just that it looked like a dip because the six was such an outlier in terms of there having been so much pent up demand for a quote unquote bigger iPhone. Mm hmm. Um, and I think this, you know, the the numbers they just announced for the iPhone Seven certainly back that up. That it's it was just right. an outlier. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the plus. I, I guess uh, Tim said on the call that the iPhone Seven Plus was the highest portion, mm. was higher portion of the mix than yes. in the past. Yeah. Uh, so that you know, people are getting acclimated to the larger phones. That increases their profit margins, obviously, because the larger phones don't cost them you know, whatever percent larger, right. whatever percent more to make. Um, and increases their ASP, their average selling price, which is always a, a guidance point that like analysts love to look at because it means that for every every amount of ounce of effort they put into marketing or whatever the case may be, the return is higher, you know, because you've got that individual unit that's a higher higher price. And it, and it really costs you roughly the same amount to sell that as it does anything else. Um, you know, it's like growing a tall tree versus a short tree. I mean, they're both trees, right? Yeah. So there's, there's a definite, like, uh, positivity around that uh, I, that I've been seeing, that the bigger phones, are people are loving them. They're taking them up, and they're uh, they're buying more of them than ever. It is interesting, and you know I think Apple is pretty good at this stuff. But it's always interesting to to see them admit that they don't that their their estimates were off. And it's you know like you said that they've admitted that the the mix of the plus to the non plus seven, even though the the regular iPhone seven they said was the best selling model, the plus sold better this year than it has I guess in the previous two years. Um, and right, that, the that, highest mix of them, right. you know, than versus the other, right? Uh, makes me wonder, in particular, if the 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 camera, in particular, uh, 
I mean, it's got to be, right? I mean, yeah, sure, part of it is just getting used to bigger size, but the camera has to drive like X percent of it. Like, I'm not, I'm not pulling out a number, but let's say 30% of the decisions to buy that phone were, oh, it's got the better camera, so I'll just get that one, right? Yeah, and it seems like something that you can see it when you're in the store. Like, if you go in the store and you're on the fence over whether to get an iPhone 7 or 7 Plus, starting this year, you can tell just by looking without even trying the camera, it looks different, right? It's it's double right. the size. It looks like it, you know, you can see that it has like optic the, the previous years the the plus models had the optical image stabilization. With the starting with the six, it was for stills only. And mm-hmm. then the success added it for video. Um, that's a great feature, especially for video. I mean it's it, it I, I, it's almost unbelievable how good some of my little home family videos come out now uh, yeah. because of image stabilization on video. Um, but you can't see it in the store. So it's just a bullet point. And everybody is, mm-hmm. I think, it, 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 you build up an immunity to bullet points because every time you buy anything, <laughs> right. whether it's a car or a toaster oven, you know, it, Everything has bullet points. Yeah. Uh, here's the features that your coffee maker right. has. You right. know, twelve cups. Uh, you know, <laughs> it has an alarm. Makes coffee. Right. Makes coffee. <laughs> um, uh, whereas you just look at the back of the seven plus, and you could it, the idea that the camera is better on this one than the smaller one. It seems visceral because you just look at it. I can't help but think that that actually successfully bumped sales of this which in turn makes me think yeah that if you know uh, they may not be done we this might just be the start of the bigger more expensive iphone having tangibly better camera technology just because it it seems like it's proof that it can drive sales i think you're you're right there are two things that i think are really driving this i i'm 100 percent agree that the difference could actually you know the physical difference the way it looks could definitely make a big difference. You're right on there, and it, I know there will people be people that listen to this, and they'll laugh. They'll be like, "Oh yeah, you know, people are just looking at the back of it and going, oh yeah, this one's bigger, got a bigger camera thingy on it, and I'm gonna buy that.'" But I think people would be shocked, especially people that listen to this show, which you know, the subset of people that are in the world that listen to this show. You know, much higher technical savvy than average, probably do a lot more research on products than average. You know, if you were doing a demographic survey, I think that none of these things would be surprising, right? right? But I think people underestimate very heavily how little research people do when they go to buy stuff in a store. Like they'll go to the store to get a phone, not having looked at a single thing online or asked anybody or whatever, and they'll just go and they'll just like, I want the best along X or Y personal axis, you know, uh, best camera or most storage or whatever, honestly, whatever most recent problem they had hmm. is probably how they pick. And I've seen this myself. I used to work in big box retail and, you know, I've, I've sold a lot of different things over the years, but one of the times I was selling like digital cameras especially this was like early in the early digital camera days very early and you know somebody comes in and is looking like a mavica like a sony mavica which one of the ones that took the floppy disks yeah, yeah, uh, yeah you would throw those in there and you know they they honestly nine times out of ten all they want is which one has the biggest number on the box they would literally look at the boxes and they go oh this one has 10 that one has eight and you're like well yes but the one that's i mean if you're 
uh, an honest person. You go, well, the one that's eight, that's slightly less, is actually better for you because, I don't know, it has this swivel thing and you really need that for whatever you're doing. But if you don't have that person there, that decision's getting made based on the number on the box, right? Hey, that's 10. This one's eight. I'll get the 10, right? I have the money. That's fine. Let's go. And I think that people make those decisions that way a lot more than most people think. And even though... Apple store employees are theoretically better informed than your average big box retailer. They don't have the time. Apple stores are more crowded than ever. People are making decisions without intervention by an employee and just asking the employee to set it up for them. And hopefully the employee maybe intervenes at some point if they feel it's the wrong product for them and tries to switch them to something that is, but there's no guarantees. So I think that literally the physical difference in the camera could ha- make a real big difference for people because of those reasons. And it's it seems silly or obvious or whatever, but people are silly and obvious when they buy. Yeah. You know, that's just the vast majority of consumers are that way. I, so. And I think it's also telling how long Apple has stuck with the shot shot on iPhone ad campaign. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Schiller said it when he was on my show... Uh, I forget if it was last year or the, the first time two years ago where I, I think Good it was... Good name drop. I like it. <laughs> but yeah, I asked him, like, <laughs> do, do... I think it was two years ago because I think last year it would have... It was so obvious it would have... It was yeah. too late to ask. But I just said, like, it, do you consider Apple one of the leading camera companies in the world? And his answer was the leading camera company in the world. I mean, it's, right. it's totally how he sees, you know, it, the importance of the, the camera on the on the phone and i really there's no other explanation i can think of for why this the mix of plus to non-plus would grow up this year because one of the big complaints about the the iphone 7 is that it quote unquote looks just like the iphone 6 and success that it's otherwise there Mm -hmm. there's i I just it just seems like uh, obvious (laughs) yeah and it's it's a it's a great lever to get people to buy that bigger phone even though they don't want the bigger screen, you know, because people are often just shocked by how large it is physically when they hold it. You know, if I hand somebody my, I have a seven now, but like uh, I often use a seven plus, especially when I'm traveling. And so if I hand it to somebody there, Oh my hand, this is big. You know, if they've never used one or held one. Um, But it's a testament to how, how driven by camera people are when they'll, they'll put up with that, so to speak. And knowing how hard the camera team at Apple had to push to make this thing even work, right? The dual camera thing, yeah. which is fairly, it's a really significant technical, you know, achievement. And if some other company had done this, I mean, Apple, you know, they toot their own horn a lot, right? But if some other company had done this, they they would have tooted it 10 times as much. Because it's actually a very, 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 very difficult technical problem that they achieved here. And it, out of everything in the camera, the the or excuse me out of everything in the phone the camera is really the only thing that's pushing the processor to its limits mm. to its absolute peak limits right now you know i mean you know a game or whatever the case may be they know what the limits are and they work within those but most games on average that people play aren't really pushing that hard games is probably the number 2 category but above that and up far above anything else that most people do on their phones or most of the capabilities of the phone, which are pretty well known by now, the camera in that, in that 7 Plus with its dual lens and, and twin capture and blending of the pair of photos and all of the stuff that it does, it really is pushing 
very, very hard, that A-series chip. So it, it's like a leading driver of the power, the chip power that's in the phone. Because that chip does and has done everything it needs to do for most people for a very long time. You know, for several generations. Yeah. And so it's it's driving forward the processing capability and power of the phone. Uh, and I think it's, you know, driving sales along with it. And it's it was clearly instrumental in the um, portrait mode or is, you know, a, a, like why, you know, why, why did portrait mode and the dual mode thing ship this year? I mean, part of it was I think that the camera engineering, just the camera itself, um, it took a long time. I think it's complicated, and just the 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 algorithm of how are you going to use these two lenses for zooming and and et cetera, et cetera. But I think another part of it too was that it was coincident with the A series chip getting fast enough that you can do this on the fly. From what I know about how long it took them to build this, and obviously everybody knows that it didn't ship with the phone, right? right? It shipped it shipped several weeks later, right? I don't think that was strategic. No. <laughs> I think it was necessary. Yeah. It was it was absolutely necessary for them to actually make it work, like finish it and and get it to work. And that doesn't happen if you've been able to do it for a processor generation. Right. Like that, that you, was it. You, you know? literally, Matthew Panzerino, were the first person I knew who had access to it because you got a pre-release version of it at least a couple of days ahead of the beta coming out. Um and you had like a nice little exclusive uh, on on TechCrunch with with adorable pictures of your your daughter, um, <laughs> uh, but they were really well. They picked they chose well because you're you know you've got a background in photography, so you're not just sitting there shooting pictures of your you know uh, I don't know your desk or whatever. Um, yeah, but I think you could I, I even when it first came out and they let us use the beta, there were mm-hmm. performance problems with it that that have right. since been ironed out and now it just there is a sort of it just works you put it in portrait mode the preview is live the phone doesn't get hot and it just works yeah that stuff is being iterated on as we speak like you and i are talking right now it's four o'clock you know i'm sure the camera team is still working on updates to that thing right because it's it's a living document right. you know in terms of the way that it performs the edge detection gets better every iteration and the the blur effect gets more organic and more natural you know that they, they're able to push that processor via optimization because obviously the hardware hasn't changed right? right so they are able to optimize the processes further so they're able to do more and more complex calculations on that but it really is bleeding edge stuff like there no nobody else is pushing this hard and people were very quick you know when i published that preview and then eventually when when we did the like the review of the phone and stuff like that people were very quick to say oh you know well this model or that model from some other brand has been doing this Mm. for years yada yada um it's true that other brands have done this faux blur thing but not in this way and not to this level of sophistication and to be honest even though some of the results were kind of hinky up front, you know it's going to get better because they're dedicated to making it better and they have they know this is a primary driver of purchases. Whereas a lot of these other phones, it was a one-off gimmick to try and sell phones that quarter and really is going to get no significant updates in the future, you know? Yeah. And it's it's a shame, but nobody else is really driving like that. Samsung works sort of backwards, right? From like, oh, you know, what what do we think the market wants this quarter? Let's try to produce that. And then, you know, they're I'm not saying that their their products are not, you know, solid or, you know, decent or whatever if they don't explode. But there is there is a drive there to get that kind of stuff right. 
because they know that this is the thing that people want. It's not not what they say they want, which is more megapixels or, you know, sharper images or, or these crude terms that they use to describe it. It's actually they want their pictures to look more like pictures. And that's a really nebulous thing until you, you know, you sort of figure out how to define that. I think they spend a lot of time trying to define that for people. Yeah, I also think uh, it is the clearest path that I can think of because I I fail in certain other forms of imagination of how 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 can the iPhone continue to get better, and um, there are some little things you know like uh, um, like the True Tone color that the iPad Pro has that would be great to eventually have it on the iPhone too. There's you know, but the, the, I can't see the display quality wise getting radically better so much so that it would that's why you'd get a new phone uh everybody is there's rumors that are rampant that the industrial design is going to change and they're going to get rid of the head and forehead and just sort of go from a top to bottom left to right edge to edge display and visually that would be very striking Uh, if it looks super cool then i could see that driving sales but how many you know after you do that how does it keep going whereas the camera can continue to get better Every 12 months, maybe not in a radical way because you run up into limits of physics, but, uh, you know, in lens optics, but in, in a tangible way. And that if you're only, if you're on like a two or three year upgrade cycle, you can get a radically better camera every time you upgrade to a new phone. That to me could continue to drive sales about where we are right now for the iPhone for years to come. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's, there's not much else for them to chip away at. And I think there will be new opportunities in other categories that may even involve the camera, you know, AR, augmented reality, or VR, or whatever the case. But as far as, like, the on-device components, uh, they're they're pretty well along towards, uh, you know, diminishing returns, right? So, yeah, I agree. Camera's camera's a primary driver there. All right, let me take a break here and thank... Our first sponsor. It's a new sponsor. I'm very excited about this company. It's a company called Ministry of Supply. Ministry of Supply uh, makes performance dress clothes. What does that mean? Well, it was launched by a bunch of uh, a group of former uh, engineers, engineering students from MIT, and they make fabrics, performance fabrics, the type of things that are on like gym clothes, but they use them to make. Uh, dress clothes, like stuff that you'd wear to work. Uh, they are breathable. They are flexible. They are way more comfortable. Uh, totally feel different. Uh, even less resist. They're even more resistant to wrinkles. I shouldn't say less resistant. More resistant. Uh, they sent me some samples. They sent me a jacket, really nice jacket, and a very nice dress shirt. The dress shirt is is uh, really really nice. Uh, feels great. Looks great. Uh, and even when I took it out of the box, my wife even commented on the shirt. She was like, whoa, what is that? You know, because it just looks a little different. Not like in terms of like weird, but just sort of like has like a nice sheen to it. It was very, very nice. Uh, they also sent me some socks, just socks. Uh, and they're very comfortable socks. Uh, so here's what it, one of the examples. Uh, men's future forward dress shirt. I think that's the one they sent me. It regulates your body temperature based on your surroundings, keeps you warmer when it's cold, keeps you cooler when it's warm. Their dress shots are made out of coffee fibers that whisk sweat and absorb odor. They provide extreme cushion and are shockingly comfortable. I can vouch for that. The socks are super comfortable. 
Uh, no risk. They offer free shipping, free returns, and a 100-day no-questions-asked return policy. So you can buy your clothes, get your shirt, find out it's the slightly wrong size. Maybe you should have gotten a one a little smaller, a little bigger. Send it back totally free, up to 100 days. Uh, couldn't be better. Go to their website. is ministryofsupply.com slash the talk show ministry of supply.com slash the talk show. Uh, and what they'll do if you go there is they will send you a free pair of their moisture wicking dress socks for free, a $15 value with your first purchase. And they also have seven retail stores, uh, including Bethesda, Maryland, Chicago, and Atlanta. And you can go into their retail stores. If there's one near you and just mention the talk show when you check out and you'll get that same free pair of socks. So my thanks to Ministry of Supply. Uh, great, great sponsor. Love it. Really, really cool stuff. What cool. next on the on the the results front? iPad, maybe. iPad sales were sixteen million last year the same quarter and third down to thirteen million this quarter. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know. I mean I think that <laughs> I think we're still we're still trying to find the the replacement cycle, and I and the bottom of it, you know yeah. the 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 um, what do you call it the bottom the bottom of the pendulum arc, yeah, uh, but where it starts to swing back up and people repurchase or steady stabilizes anyway. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that there's two schools of thought on this. I think you could argue that you know iPads are built really well and they handle you know, single tasks. And it's sort of like you got a Apple sold um, a framing hammer to someone to hang pictures, right? Mm. So like the, you know, you go to the hardware store, there's five kinds of hammer there. There's a, you know, picture hanging hammer, which comes in a little like plastic, you know, uh, uh, bubble pack, and it's got like a few finished nails and the hammer. And it's like if you hammer anything bigger than a teeny tiny nail into a plaster or whatever, it just the head, the head falls off, right? And you go all the way up the scale through all the different hammers to a framing hammer. And a framing hammer is a hammer that like slams in ten penny nails to two by fours or two by sixes on a on a construction lot, right? The framing hammer is reinforced. Uh, it's got a like a long tang that's that's you know, really thoroughly embedded in the head. And when you swing that thing, bang, you know, it goes, it's got a waffle head to, so you know the nail got nice and, and trunked down and you can see that you got your imprint on that board so you know the nail's driven all the way home. And you could just wail away on that for 10 years and you, that hammer will last you, right? So Apple sold people framing hammers and they're, they're hemming in picture frames. So you've got, you know, uh, a, a 10-year-old or 5-year-old or heck even a teenager or or an adult who uses it to browse the web and and for a variety of different apps that don't really push the capabilities of the iPad in any significant way and they're like this is fine why can't I just keep using this because that framing hammer is nowhere near its limits right, right. and so i think that there's that's one school of thought that like you know the iPad is significantly overbuilt for the tasks that most people use it for and then the other school, I think, the other side of it is Apple has not done as good of a job as it could 
explaining to people how much they can do with that framing hammer. Like they haven't sold it as a framing hammer. And so I think that there's definitely some interesting debates to be had there. I don't even know where I fall, you know, on that scale yet. I, I'm of two minds about it, but I think those are the kind of arguments that people are having about where the iPad is currently. And then on top of that, you have this, hey, we don't know how long it's going to be before people need to or want to replace an iPad that they don't break, right. you know? Ever since the iPad 2 or 3 or whatever, you know, iPad Air, I guess you'd, you'd say, um, it, it's been pretty capable. Yeah. So why replace it? Yeah, I think it starts with the iPad Air. I feel like up until then, it was still improving rapidly. I mean, the first one is the first one. I mean, you know, it was, you know, wow, it's a tablet that people might actually buy, but it was super thick. It didn't have retina. And Mm -hmm. then it got thinner and then it got retina, but the iPad three that added retina actually got thicker than the iPad two that was before it. And it was replaced by Apple six months after it came out, which is sort of ridiculous in hindsight. It just shows, shows how far they were pushing themselves to get that retina iPad three out. Uh, and then I really feel like it found itself with the iPad Air, where they shrank the size on the sides, uh, and it the the A series chips had gotten. I'm sorry about that. That that launched Siri again on my phone by saying A <laughs> series. I'm sorry. I apologize to anybody out there who's A Siri. Hey Dingus was uh, activated. Uh, but at, at, and I just feel like my my working hypothesis on the weird trajectory of iPad sales weird meaning it you know at one point was like 20 million a quarter and it was sky it was faster it was never above the iPhone but it was above the iPhone at that date since launch like the first iPad outsold mm-hmm. the first iPhone the second iPad iPad 2 outsold the iPhone 3G and you know, I, and then it came down to earth. And my working theory on this is simply like pretty much what you said that it's it, there was this great unfilled need. Steve Jobs was right that there was this middle territory for something like an iPad in people's lives, and there was nothing like it, right? The phones were too small, and laptops are, you know, they are great for certain things, but they're, there's, they're impersonal enough, and the form factor is such that. It, you know, it creates this void that the iPad actually does fill. But then once people got one, especially of the Air Vintage or later, they're that's it. They don't need another one until they, you know, break the other one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it from the terms of like, hey, Steve introduces the iPad and says, we think people are going to love this. People need this, and that was if you. <coughs> if you ascribe to the the histories of it, the um, iPad was the goal. And the iPhone was an ancillary yeah. thing that they hit on. Um, but if you go to go back to that and you say, you have him walk on stage and say, we think that this is going to be, you know, in 10 years or whatever. Uh, what, what is it now? 2010. So seven, seven years. In seven years, this is going to be a, a total of $300 million business for Apple, which is about what iPads are. Maybe a little more now, right? People would have been like overjoyed. Right, three hundred million dollars. Uh, you know that, uh, or three hundred million units. Excuse me, right. three hundred million dollars, significantly more dollars. But you know, you you look at the amount total you sold and these these billions of dollars of, you know, business that the iPad created. You would go, hey, that's an entire company. 
more than an entire company's worth of value that you're going to create for Apple and shareholders and whatever else. That is more that is more than great. And it's only because the iPhone has been so, you know, outsized popular and now we know continues to grow uh, that the iPad looks paltry in comparison. Like and you're because it had it, those go-go early years. Yeah, yeah, you, you, exactly. Where it was exactly. a real ramp up, right. you know, fastest selling computer or fastest selling consumer electronics device. Um, I think maybe the Connect beat it for a time and then it surpassed. I don't know. Don't quote me. But, you know, one of the right. fastest anyway, uh, selling consumer electronics devices of all time. And it just, yeah, you, you look at those boom years and you go, oh, man, you know, it's now it's going down or whatever. But, uh, you know, iPad still, they still sold 13 million of right. those, you know, in the last quarter, which is crazy. And if yeah, you know, it's still an enormous business. And it, it is Apple's answer to the sub thousand dollar computer market, right? Like, let's right. just admit that the phone is a phone and even Apple, you know, it's smartphone is the most important device in the computer industries ever come up with any even apple i think even as much as apple knew with the 10 year ago introduction of the iphone that they had something special on their hands i I think that even apple itself was surprised at just how how useful a smartphone could be and how much we would depend on it as our our primary device um if you just think of the ipad if if they called it the MacPad instead of iPad, and you just counted it with mm-hmm. Mac sales as PC, I don't I I don't think that's a ridiculous comparison to make. You know that there are people who are going to you know going to go drop five hundred dollars on a portable computer. Well, they're not going to buy a MacBook because there is no such thing as a five hundred dollar MacBook, but they might get an iPad Pro or you know an iPad Air or whatever. Um, if you add up, you know, those 13 million uh, iPad sales to the max 5 million sales, that's 18 million personal computers that Apple sold, you know, in the whatever price range from iPad to, to you know, most expensive Mac. Uh, it's pretty impressive. But I do think that it's sort of going to – I think it's already settled into sort of a Mac-like static number of how many million they can sell a quarter. You know, so the the – analogy the cars and trucks analogy where a car's a you know lightweight computer and a truck is a desktop or whatever i mean people often view the ipad as the car and you know that's and then set the iphone aside but i think it's interesting to rejigger that a little bit and view the iphone as the car hmm. um you know the iphone's your daily driver Right, you name me a day you don't touch your iPhone. It's right. possible, right? If you lost it, you broke it. You don't touch it. Other than that, you touch it every day. So that's your car. The desktop stays the truck, right? So the question then is like, is the iPad your your utility vehicle or is it your sports car? In other words, do you like take it out on the weekends to get work done, or do you take it out on the weekends for fun? And I think that there's there's whatever the case, whatever side of that you come down on, I think there's definitely a case to be made for the iPad as like a, a purpose-driven device that, I mean, you know, there are whole companies built up around like Revel Systems and other things yeah. that are built up around using the iPads to to serve functions. And the, it, a large portion of its business is driven by institutional sales, right? Yep. Like schools and other things that use the iPads in in very specific ways. And I think that there's the the netbook 
arena or whatever when you remember the netbook era in schools when everybody's like oh we'll just buy netbooks for the kids and those things were just so bad like they were so bad garbage yeah garbage garbage it and was so the, it's it, a <laughs> it was very funny to me because uh i mean my son is now in seventh grade but as a 13 year old he's sort of uh like an interesting age technology wise because uh you know, when he first started going to school, it was, you know, it wasn't quite 10 years ago, but, you know, 2008, nine, whatever. His school had a lot of, I don't know if they were called netbooks, but, you know, effectively they were. That's what a lot of the devices mm-hmm. they had. And all the, all the kids knew they were junk. Like the, cause it, and it was so funny to me because I remember when I was a kid getting access to any computer in school was, it was, it would, it was like <laughs> all of a sudden I'm poof, just, pump full of dopamine and i'm on you know yes right right and yes there were ones that were better than others and newer than others and there were even the some of them some of the classes i mean it was so ad hoc at the elementary school i went to there were you know some teachers had like a ti 99 4a or whatever it was called which was a total piece of junk i mean it ran off Mm -hmm. a literal cassette tape drive but i loved it it was just so funny to me to see like first graders who thought that you know didn't even want to use the netbooks because they were such pieces of junk Mm mm-hmm Right. And they can, it's like they can tell. <laughs> if yeah. they could tell, everybody could tell. And it, if you look at the iPad that way and you look at it like, hey, you know, no matter what your, I mean, you know, there are some people that can't afford any computer at all. And that's, that's, you know, to be, that's a different uh, problem or different discussion to be had. Right. But if you can afford a computer, the almost nearly the first computer you could afford is either a subsidized iPhone or an unsubsidized iPad, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that if you you could look at like Chromebooks and a lot of those other things as sort of those companies' efforts to do that, to lower the barrier, to get somebody to using um, their computer slash using the web in Google's case, using their services and using their connected you know, there are connected services that that carry advertising and whatever the case may be. Um, in Apple's case, it's the same thing. It's like we want people to be into the Apple ecosystem so we can teach them about how good Apple could be for them and, and what, you know, what an Apple computer feels like versus another computer. Uh, and I think the iPad's a good ambassador that way. And so if it always exists, if it levels out at some point, because we, we haven't seen any leveling out. I think that's the big question marks that everybody is seeing right now. As once the, the, the true replacement cycles start to kick in and or you know, Apple finds a way to revitalize it in some significant way where you know, we get a new spike that resets the bar and then it you know, slopes downwards from there as everybody adopts the, the new thing. Whatever the case may be, I think there will be a point where it eventually levels out and we see what kind of business the iPad business actually is and will be long term. And I think that business will always be characterized by its ability to, you know, give people expanded computing capabilities at far less price than in a MacBook. Yeah. And that's that's what it will always be for Apple. And and Apple could preach about, you know, what it could be for artists and what it could be for creatives and all this other stuff. And that's great. And now hopefully they continue to serve those people by pushing the capabilities of the device. But the vast majority of sales in the category are not that. Yep. You know, there's not 13 million artists buying it for pencils. You know, yep. it's just not, that's not the way it works. The the number I pointed out, well, one of the numbers I pointed out was that uh, just looking at revenue, um, last year, 
iPad was above Mac and services by like a little bit for Mac and about a billion dollars in revenue for the same quarter last year. And as of this year, and the, uh, the numbers announced today, the Mac uh, did $7.2 billion in revenue, and iPad was down to 5.5, uh, and services were up from $6 billion to $7.2 billion. Um, I don't, again, I don't, I'm not a doom and gloom on iPad, but I think it just goes to show how the mix of the, the price points that are selling at iPad are, are low. I think that the, you know, mm-hmm. and I think the iPad Pro is a successful product, but I think it's going to be most successful in years to come as it trickles down, you know, the original right. iPad Pros trickle down to the lower price points. Uh, and I think it's clear since the Macs, like unit sales are just about dead even, but the revenue was up quite a bit that the MacBook Pros, the new ones sold pretty well for the first quarter. And I don't even think that, that they weren't even out for the whole quarter. Right. Yeah, they weren't. And when you look at that trickle-down effect, I mean, you look at the iPad Pro, <coughs> especially the larger one, and how much capability. I mean, easily at on par utility-wise, uh, at least in, in the specific utilities, with Cintiq, you know, um, computers mm-hmm. from like Wacom that were several thousand dollars more and, frankly, worse. Yeah. You know, they, the pencil tracking was not nearly what it is on the iPad, and the screen does not have the color rendition and accuracy of the iPad Pro. And you look at all that, and you look at as that trickles down, you're going to see those Pro devices being giving people access, artists and other creatives access to those capabilities in ways that just were not even heard of. And I think Apple doesn't get credit for that stuff because people want to see you know, in the business and tech writing world, people want to see those results in the numbers. And it's like, oh, every everybody must buy that iPad Pro and really drive up the sales and price and stuff every quarter. Whereas if you look at it in the arc of the game where it's like, hey, we're shipping this now in in a year, it's going to be really affordable and we're going to sell a lot more of them or a lot more of devices that have their capability, whatever they're going to call them. Yeah. Uh, and that that arc, I think, is a very interesting one and it's hard to message, right? Because people don't want to hear uh, we're, we're putting this thing out that not a lot of people are going to buy, but more people will buy later when it's affordable. They want to hear, oh, we're putting this thing out that people must buy now. Yeah, yeah. And, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> like anything it. short of an iPad that makes everybody just throw their old iPad in the garbage and go get in line to buy the new one is somehow a failure. But it doesn't really work right. that way. Uh, the only yeah. other thing I, I have from the uh, results and from the, the notes of the conference call that I read was that Tim Cook pointed out that Apple Pay users are up 3 3x year over year. So that's a really it was a that's that's a very good year for Apple Pay, especially since it's it's what? 2 years old now, 2 and a half years old. Mhm. Um and again, I, that's the other thing I had in my notes that is sort of like, hey, let's all remember that that getting people to do something uh, to to like 2013 years hey you're gonna pay for stuff by putting your fingerprint on a phone at the register on your cell phone uh right sounds weird right it's like different and it's like i don't know i mean i i know enough about how it works i understand it that it's i actually understand that it's actually more secure than using a credit card a lot more secure it, it, it you know if you're doing a magnetic swipe um 
But, you know, people always have the heebie-jeebies about putting their credit card into their phone or something like that. I mean, there were a lot of, an awful lot of people who spent years not buying anything at all on the web because they didn't feel like they could trust it because it was new and different. And that's just the way humans are hooked up for the most part, that new and different is scary and therefore you wait. Um, so 3X growth in Apple Pay, I, I guess I, I didn't see the details on where exactly that is, like how much of that is in the U.S., how much of it is worldwide expansion. Um, but I feel it's one of those stories that in terms of, hey, Apple hasn't done a goddamn thing under Tim Cook that that, that crowd conveniently overlooks. That it's a That's a really solid Tim Cook Apple era success story. Yeah, I mean, changing user behavior on something that has to do with their wallet, you know, their bank account or whatever, that's insanely hard. It's insanely hard. And so it is It is encouraging to see things like that, that theoretically, you know, could be big bets. I mean, you know, when people had the inkling that they were going to get into payments, you know, people saw that as a, as a very big business for them. And I think it's still... It, you know, it already is so, somewhat of a business under the services category and could be a much larger business in the future, especially if, you know, Apple's able to sell Apple Pay through and keep up this kind of growth. But I mean, it's the hurdles you have to overcome when you're switching over to something like Apple Pay are crazy. Yeah. I mean, you've got, you know, you come to the counter and you're going to pay with your phone and you're not quite sure where to put it and you're not, you know, how far away and what part of this credit card. So I put it where the credit card goes. Do I put it over the keypad? Do I put it over some weird symbol that I'm not familiar with? Do I put it on this clear plastic part? You know, and people are embarrassed. They don't it, want to do that. It, First of all, there are people behind them. And, yeah, it's you know, still so early days. Like that. I hate it's, it. It's still so early days that usually, like when I go to a, like a place that, ju- uh, like I notice that they've upgraded their point of sale systems, and I either see the Apple Pay logo or I see that little Wi-Fi looking logo that means it usually works. Apple Pay usually works even if they're not officially Apple Pay yet. You know that it just has contactless, you know, uh, uh, NFC payments. Um, the clerk usually has no idea. And I'll say like, they'll be like, how are you going to pay? And I'll say, I'm going to try Apple Pay. And they'll say, what's that? <laughs> I mean, I've had that happen. And it, it, I'm not afraid <laughs> right. to do it because I know, you know, uh, I'm, A, I'm not embarrassed even if it doesn't work. And B, uh, you know, I, I'm not embarrassed that I might know more about how this works than the clerk. But somebody has to go first and people are resistant to stuff like that. Here's a funny thing. This is true. Yeah. I think I, I forget yeah. if I've mentioned this on the show before or not, but one of the places I go that just added a new point of sale system that, that supports Apple Pay are the uh, the state-run liquor stores here in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and mm. theirs very consistently uh, uh, doesn't work on the first try. Every single time I, I put my phone there, I have my thumb on the sensor, and it says card not valid or something. Something's not valid. Use card instead. But if I just sit there and lift my mm-hmm. thumb and press it again, it goes ding, and then I get the payment. But how many people would even think to try that? <laughs> like, did, And every time, every single time I you, do it. You? Right. <laughs> I just looked at the error message and I thought, well, that, that error message makes no sense. So I'm just going to try again. And I, I, you know, didn't ask the clerk for help or anything. I just sat there. I just moved the phone away, moved it back. And now every time I do it, it gets, it's the same thing. Uh, anything yeah. else on yeah, earnings? That kind of finickiness doesn't, doesn't translate well. Yeah. Anything um, else on earnings before we move uh, on? Nothing ahead. All right. Uh, let me take a break then. And 
thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends, longtime sponsor of the show, Audible. Uh, Audible is the unmatched selection of audio content. Everybody thinks of them. I always do. I do. I think of them as the place you go for audiobooks. Uh, and they are the number one source in the world for audiobooks. But they really have expanded to just audio in general. They have their own audio shows, news, comedy, uh, all sorts of stuff. You get a membership. You go there. You get, number one, if you go to audible.com slash talk show, you'll get a 30-day free trial. So there you go. 30 days, you can listen to everything you want uh, at audible.com slash talk show. But it, it's just amazing how much stuff they have. And their stuff works on just about any device that you have that can play audio. You can play Audible stuff. So even if you have like uh, an old iPod that you use like to work out at the gym or something like that, uh, it, it doesn't have to be like a smartphone. You don't need like a special app. You can just download the stuff to your uh, Mac and sync it over to an old iPod or, or iPod or Kindle or anything like that that can play audio and it'll work. Audio content is so great. If you're listening to me to sell you on Audible right now, you obviously listen to audio. Uh, audio content. You obviously listen to really long podcasts. You probably have more time uh, on your commute or wherever it is that you listen. You want to fill it with more good stuff. Go to audible.com slash talk show and you will find it. So my thanks to Audible for sponsoring the show. Remember that URL, audible.com slash talk show, and you will get a 30-day free trial if you haven't got one yet. Uh, Here's some news, and it's interesting. It's follow-up from last week's show. I had Ben Thompson on, and I mentioned an anecdote from a, a reader of the show, and I was a little nervous bringing it up because it was like one uh, reader who wrote me this email, but he convinced me. It, it, he, it, it really seemed like he knew what he was talking about. Like It wasn't just like – he wasn't just – spitting in the wind but he bought the new lg ultrafine 5k display the one that that apple like sort of co-developed and it's the only retina standalone display you can get from apple right now is this these lg models um and he was having all sorts of problems with it and for some reason it occurred to him to try moving it and he did and it turns out that moving it away from his wi-fi router solved the problems and i mentioned this on the show with ben thompson well uh it seems like this is an actual thing. Uh, Zach Hall wrote a story at nine to five Mac pers firsthand story where the exact same thing happened with him where he, and, and the problem was so bad. It was like actually crashing his MacBook. He had his MacBook hooked up to the five K display <laughs> and it was like freezing his, his MacBook. He Googled a little bit, saw some other people speculating about this. Hey, it's near a Wi-Fi router. His was near his Wi-Fi router, so he moved it to a different, moved it away from from his desk, and the problems all went away. And then he contacted LG, and LG said, "Yeah, just uh, don't use it near a Wi-Fi router." This is crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, why would a computer ever be near a Wi-Fi router? <laughs> right, right, it's. <laughs> it, it, I can't help but think, especially in a home office, it's got to be a frequent, uh, a, a common scenario, you know, and anybody, you know, like, yeah, probably uh, anybody who, who's like lives in like a studio apartment or something like that. I mean, you may not even be able to move it that far away. You know, it's kind of crazy. And it just, yeah, it's it, insane. Um, yeah. I mean the gist. I guess of, we. Fe I guess we know how exactly how closely co-developed it was. Now, yeah. <laughs> the 
the gist of this display, I do not have one. I have a iMac here, so I'm not a 5K iMac, so I'm not in the market for a standalone display. But I saw, I've seen them in the Apple stores. I saw them at the Apple event that you and I were at a couple months ago. Uh, and my impression, my firsthand impression of just looking at it, you know, from a kick the tires perspective was it's a gorgeous display in a really chintzy, but at least plain looking case. It doesn't, it's not an ugly, I don't think they're ugly, but they're not really, it's not 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 sexy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's not sexy. Like an Apple product is like, you're like, wow, that Mm -hmm. is, I want that. That is gorgeous. Even before you see it, but the display quality is excellent. Um, and the convenience of just being able to plug in USB-C Thunderbolt and just have it work seems really great. And But like you said, it seems pretty clear that the collaboration with Apple was <laughs> not on the enclosure. <laughs> so the chintzy... No, the chintzy, no yeah, ex- not on the shielding. <laughs> the chintzy feeling and looking enclosure is also chintzily shielded. And and uh, now, right. I'm not an expert right. on shielding, but it seems to me like this is just emblematic of why there's a practical reason beyond just wanting to spend more more money that that a lot of us wish Apple were making its own Apple branded 5K displays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the answers that I got with this stuff when I poked around, you know, like why the heck not? You know, yeah, um, is it's it's pretty much as hard as designing an entire system. So why do it? And, and it's, you know, or not why do it. It's, it's like not that attitude right. that I got, like who cares? It was more, we have so many hours in the day and this is like designing a new iMac. So maybe we shouldn't do it this time, you know, and maybe we should put our efforts elsewhere. And I mean, you could disagree or agree. I'm not, I'm not a scratch. I'm not saying yay or nay to their POV, but that's the, that's the input that I got. Um, and not, it's not through official channels or anything. So this is not like a PR message. It's just a matter of like, it's really hard to build that, uh, especially because of the, the throughput, um, you know, that you have to have to connect it to external displays. And if they wanted to do it the way that they wanted to do it normally, which probably would have worked close to a Wi-Fi router, it would have taken them a lot of time and money and manpower, uh, to achieve. I guess the money, money's not really the problem. It's more the time and manpower. Yeah. Um, you know, taking somebody off of Max or off of another department to work on on that, or hiring people in and then training them up through Apple University and blah 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 to get you know to a point where they are able to work on those hardware products. Um, just they just felt they couldn't devote the time to it. I guess I don't know. It's you know it's a hard one. I, you know whether you want to fault them or not. I, I, I don't know. And obviously some people do, but uh, for this, for which is that they have so much money. How can this, how can they possibly be stretched thin on resources? Now, whether that's an actual emblematic of a problem in their mindset, that they're still at an executive level, think too much like the small company, smaller company they used to be pre iPhone or whether it's actually bad management. I don't know, but it's obvious though that they are whether they whether that's reasonable and that's a sign that they you know that for apple to be apple that you know like maybe the the pro argument would be for apple to be apple they have to continue to to be like a small company that focuses on a few things because that's just how that's how it works the con argument would be you know it's just ridiculous that they can't afford to put an engineering team together to do a display 
but it's it it the proof you know whether it should be this way or not they are they're stretched thin and i think that the decision not to do this it, it, it's exactly along those lines that if we if it's going to take us that much effort to do this we we put that effort somewhere else right yes and you you could hammer all day on the argument that well they should be able to afford the man hours or whatever the case but yeah, that's the way it came down, and that's why these decisions were made the way they are. As far as I know, I don't mean I don't know. Right. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think you you reach a point where saying no becomes less about uh, oh, we're not going to pursue this new fun thing, and sometimes it, it comes down to we're not going to splinter ourselves in ways that make a lot of logical sense. Like it's much harder to say no to the things that makes make a ton of sense than it is to say no to the things that have very obvious faults and flaws and and whatever you know I mean so many unlo- unknowns in a project can lead you to say no uh, so many things that say hey you know we're we're down this pathway and we've spent a lot of money and whatever those could be hard to say no to but the ones that make total sense like why wouldn't Apple make an external display those are the ones that you're going to take the most heat over. Those are the ones that you're going to hopefully have to really come to have a come to Jesus moment on and say, we're not making them for these reasons that make a lot of sense to us and that we can't even message or, or, you know, don't want to message externally for whatever reason. Um, if it is simply that they can't, they don't have enough people to work on it. Man, you know, it's it's hard. It's that's a hard thing to defend, but if they don't have them, they don't have them, right? Yep. What are you going to do? Like you can't just hire a whole new random team full of random people to work on a high-profile hardware release because you're going to have the same problem as the LG thing has. Yep. It's going to have some weird dumb issue. I mean, as, as hard as Apple works on their stuff, there's always some weird dumb issue when they launch something, right? Because this stuff is difficult and it's very complex. So, if you're not going to own that, and own whatever problems you come. You can't say, oh, we put our B team on this, right? Or we put the noobs on it. You just got to say no. I wouldn't be surprised if Apple doesn't do a standalone display or two, you know, 4K and 5K. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't have any kind of like little birdie info that, yes, they're coming. Uh, I have had little birdie info, and other people have too, that, that there were Apple-branded displays in the works within Apple. Um, whether they're still moving forward, I have not heard anything. I, I don't know. So I don't have, I can't even whisper a secret on the show and say I've heard it. But I know that there were, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if the story is, I mean, the one everybody seems to believe right now is Apple is out of the standalone display game, period, and we're never going to have another one. Possible. I would not be surprised if there never is another standalone display. Um, other than you know, treating the iMac, buying an iMac just to use as a standalone display with with target display mode, which is kind of ridiculous. The idea that you'd buy a computer you wouldn't use, but it, it does work. Um, well, it also, does also beg the question: How expensive is the display versus the other components right. in the device? So, if your five K display had to be sixty percent as expensive as a regular iMac, that's on the bubble. If right. it's seventy percent as expensive. Right. Who the hell's going to buy it? Right. You know, so I, there's also that, you know, component cost uh, angle 
that you got to think about. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if the story is simply, and, and again, on this theme of Apple can only do so much at a time, and there's only so many resources for testing and for... Uh, even just stuff like sales and training the, the the entire retail staff on product design and stuff like that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they're still in the works, but it was so clear that it wasn't going to be done in time for October 2016 when they needed to have something to sell with the new MacBook Pros. They needed some mm. sort of retina display that would work with USB-C and Thunderbolt 3. Um that they couldn't get that done in time. <laughs> LG could slap something together. And so that's what they did. And I, and that maybe, but it won't, I think maybe it won't come out till like a year, you know, like next year, like next October, you know, October, 2017, a year later, here's the new Apple, whatever they're going to call it, you know, 5k display. Right. And it doesn't, it would be hard to think that they, this would be their ambassador forever. Right. Uh, it's really hard. I know that, uh, uh, you know, like it, it's a, it's a sounds funny, but I know John Syracuse has made this point on ATP several times. They're going to make this brand new campus. It's going to be, you know, it's all Johnny Ive approved hallways and curved glass and <laughs> lighting fixtures and desks. He's just, you know, they're designing their own tables and, right. and all of this. And what are they going to do? Fill them with LG displays uh, on the engineers' desks? It's good. <laughs> it just seems ridiculous. I mean, for everybody who doesn't have That's an such iMac. That's a John Syracuse thing. Right. That's really funny. I but like it, it. <laughs> it does. So I, other than Neelai Patel, Neelai is the one who, based on, like, is off-the-record briefing at the event, said Apple said they're out of the game. I was told a little bit more like what you heard, which is uh, what I asked. I was like, hey, does this – I just – I asked in, in a briefing, like, hey, is this LG display? Does that mean you're not going to make a standalone display? And, of course, I did not get an answer. <laughs> <laughs> a masterful, right. completely prepared. They were obviously rehearsed <laughs> on the point. Yeah. Did not get a yes or no, but I got, this is the display we have to show you, you know, what we're selling now. This is the display that will be in our stores uh, that we'll have, you know, hooked up in a prominent space in all of our retail stores. So make of that what you will. And that making a, a standalone display in today with all this stuff is as complicated as making like a, a new iMac or something like that. Um, that to right. me doesn't say never, it, but it does say to me, yes, you can buy the LG display now if you need a, a new display and it, we're not going to come out with one in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. I think it honestly, what it comes down to is if it makes sense, then they will. And if they, it makes a lot of sense to me, that's all I know, you know, that they would do it one day. Um, but that that day wasn't now and that they needed something to ship. I think you're totally right on that. Yeah. It also seems to me like in terms of allocating engineering and testing and all the other stuff for it, it seems to me like the sort of thing that they could get a lot of years out of because they have in the past where they've come out with new, when they called them cinema displays or whatever the other product names were, they sold them, you know, they'd come out with a new one and it would be great and maybe price competitive with other companies based on the technology of the day. And then they'd, Apple just keeps selling them at nine ninety nine as the years go on and my Monitors from Dell and other companies, you know, improve or drop in price. Um, and Apple can keep selling it because it's Apple and people like to buy the Apple branded one and they'll pay a premium for it even if it's, you know, a couple of years old. It just seems to me that they're they're at a place with these displays where the, the you know, you don't need more pixels per inch. They're super bright. They've, they've got amazing color. They've gotten to the wide color gamut um, that it, you know, it, it, 
if Apple came out with one, I think I could see that they could come out with one and sell it unchanged for three, four, five years. I mean, right. three is probably, Absolutely. I mean, three I mean, for the sure. Five, 5K is like, yeah, 5K is, it's getting close to paper resolution. I mean, you know, even above if you count color rendition. Yeah. And so it's it's just, there's not really a, there's no not a lot of places to go from there. So if they make something that could they could squeeze a many many years out of it, and really what would change would be, you know, if there was another major change in in input or output, yeah, I think that throughput of a connector yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I think that the display itself is least likely to be the the we need to, we need something to replace it. It's more likely to be the the connector. Um, yeah, it's like oh, I can't believe this display doesn't have USB eight. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, let me take one final break here and thank our third and final sponsor, longtime friend of the show, maybe the longest running sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace is the best place to go to build a new website. Uh, it's, it's just an amazing product. Uh, I can't say enough good things about it. I mentioned Syracuse. I'll steal a talking point from Marco Arment. I love this. I love this idea, which is, hey, you're a nerd. You're listening to the talk show. You might need a website yourself, and if so, you should definitely look at Squarespace. You really should. It is amazing. But here's the bigger thing. Uh, it's such a great idea. You probably know someone at some point this year. Somebody you know is going to come to you and say that they need a website. Maybe it's like a school group at your kid's school or uh, like uh, some kind of community group or a church or something that you're involved with. And you're like, everybody knows you're the tech person. You're the, you're the nerd. And they're going to come to you with help on this. Set them up with Squarespace. Go to Squarespace to get their site going. Because A, it is a great service that you might consider using anyway. But B, because it's so easy to use and because Squarespace offers award-winning tech support that you can get right on the phone. If they do have a problem, they're going to go to Squarespace and not go to you. So you can like wash your hands of the problem. You'll give them a great website. They'll get a great price. Uh, and you'll be done. You won't be on the hook for like when they need to add something or change it or whatever. They can just do it themselves. It is a great idea and a great a, a great point, I think, for the audience of a show like this. Uh, so make your next move with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com and enter the code Talk show, no the, just talk show, and you will get 10% off at checkout. It's a great, great service. Keep in mind next time you need a website or next time anybody you know needs a website. Remember that code too, talk show. Uh, here we go. Deep breath. Wish I had a stiff drink, but instead I've just got fizzy water. <laughs> yeah. Gonna, I can't, we can't, I can't. I can't keep going. I can't do this without mentioning Trump's immigration order that came down last week and Silicon Valley's responses. <laughs> and even if you want to, you know, play the let's, you know, not talk about politics, it's way too essential to the racket that we cover. It really it hits home. I mean, it's a huge deal. And um, I don't I, I, I think it's hard to hard to overstate how how much of a reaction it's already gotten from companies like Apple and Google and and etc. I saw Google had a big yeah, a big I rally. Mean, <laughs> that's right, yeah, employees did. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um yeah, you know, I we I've gotten so much hate mail over this, John. Um you know, we we cover politics and we cover the policies that affect tech, and we always have. You know, yeah. we have for many years. But 
um, we've been covering so much more of it lately because so much more has been happening that's related to our, you know, our industry that we cover and, and, uh, you know, our, our, the companies that look to us for whatever reactions or whatever context that they, they want to have. And we, you know, we've been writing about a significant amount of these things as they relate to individual companies. And then also, yeah, like tech leaders speaking out and, and taking, you know, stances one way or another pro and con and uh, well, very little pro, but uh, how far con is a good question about, about, you know, how many of them have responded. And I just get, I mean, I've gotten hate mail, you know, I mean, I I always get email, but I get you know I've gotten a lot over this, and these people are like, "Why are you talking about politics? I don't come to you for that." Um, you know, people accusing us of being partisan in one direction or another, depending on what the art you know what article gets published and all this stuff. And you know, I I just ignore most of it. Uh, I may I may end up saying something about it at some point, but the long and short of it is is that this is not a tech issue it's not a politics issue it's like a human issue yeah like if you're a human you should be interested in this stuff and to be fair to our readers like i'm i'm not instructing our our writers and our writers are not doing it they're not writing about stuff from a pure politics standpoint we're not politico like we're not just going like hey politics happened and look at politics you know we're definitely relating it to our industry uh but the tech i mean the stuff that he's that he's talking about with immigration and you know, possible uh, reduction or or clamping clamping down on H one B visas, which allow highly skilled tech workers to come over here. Those are incredibly germane to the tech industry. From everybody, from Apple to Google to to Facebook and everybody else, uses an enormous amount of H one B workers because there are a lot of highly skilled programmers that come from India, um, elsewhere in Asia, and and you know a wide variety of other countries that aren't here because our education system has a lot of flaws. So it's a, an incredibly germane issue and they're, you know, they're up in arms about it or, you know, up in some kind of arms, depending on how closely they're colluding with the current administration. Yeah. And, you know, and they're doing the right thing where they, you know, they've all these big companies, you know, the Googles, Apples, Microsofts, it's inevitable with the headcounts that they have that they have hundreds of employees who are affected by this, you know, that, that somewhere along the chain of right. their passport that they, you know, have a, you know, were born in or were, were once or still are a citizen of one of these seven countries. Uh, and, you know, might literally be out of the country right now, you know, in the way that this was implemented with, I just signed it. And it's, even if you're in the air right now, you're, you're banned is, you know, it, it's great that the companies have their employees' backs and are helping them, but um, it's interesting. I don't know. I don't. And and I thought it was you know, uh, I thought Tim Cook's statement could have been a little stronger. Like I'm not expecting him to lash out. And you know, I'm obviously you know, it's no secret that I am virulently virulently against Trump, and I see him as a danger and a menace um, personally. But even so, I totally get that Tim Cook or the CEO, anybody in a position like that, can't be, uh, even though I would certainly suspect privately that he is based on everything we know about him and who his personal heroes are. Um, I get it. And, and, you know, and I see people on Twitter who are, you know, who want him to be, you know, like a completely outspoken critic. I see how he can't, but I still think his statement could have been a little bit stronger. And, and in terms of, it's like the old adage that like when you're uh, 
you know, collaborating with people that you work with or you're in school and you're doing a crit. You criticize the work, not the person. So I, I don't expect him to come out strongly against Trump personally, but I've, I, I think he could have come out a little stronger against the, the executive order on immigration. Yeah, and you've got you've got a variety of people. Um, it was interesting. One thing here, here's like a little inside, not super inside baseball, but in, inside baseball in a way. If you look at the statements that were released, there was like, a, especially early on, there was only a couple of people that went on the record and just said stuff. Said, "Hey, this is me, and here's the, what I have to say about it." And there were a lot of leaked memos. Even Tim Cook's was not a public statement. Right. It was a quote-unquote leaked memo right Right. um you know a couple of publications got it we ended up getting it um you know the the origin of those memos is often you know debated among various journalists hey did you get this where did you get this and people are like you know sawed off i you know i'm not gonna tell you but where that where those come from is an interesting thing because a leaked memo is essentially we want to say this but we don't want to make a public statement about it because we're a public company and this has a lot of ramifications and a statement an on the record statement is a i feel very strongly personally about this come at me bro right Hmm. and that is a there's a difference right in impact i feel and eventually a lot of the ceos a lot of the, the tech companies ended up having a you know, some sort of public personal statement about it. You know, Satya Nadella posted on LinkedIn. Um, you know, the uh, Mark Zuckerberg posted on Facebook. Um, you know, so on and so forth. And those those statements. I mean, Sergey Brin showed up at the protest at yeah. SFO, yeah. and he said, "You know, this is not a not a company thing. I'm here as an immigrant, as a person." But then, of course, the employee um, rally, and then um, you know, Google was supportive of that. You know, about the about the um, the ban or whatever you want to call the order right um semantics are being debated as we speak uh but that that wasn't interesting to me to view the spectrum of people who were were at least i don't know if you want to call it comfortable but felt passionately enough about it to put it on the record in their own voice and go out there versus the people who weren't and you could it could spell caution it could spell calculation you know there are a lot of ways to take it it just depends on how you look at it yeah uh, one weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It is honestly, you know, yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot here that doesn't really feel... There's a lot of it here that seems to very clearly to be coming from Steve Bannon. Yeah. Um, you know, Bannon's t- uh, tenure at Breitbart uh, and the publications bent, it's very clear that these are all things that he feels very strongly personally about. How much of those feelings that Trump shares will be a very interesting historical account to read. Right. Um, if we ever figure that out, you know, how closely their views are aligned, or if Bannon is able to just, you know, push forth his views and make them Trump's views. Um, but it seems very clear that these attitudes towards immigration uh, and towards a variety of other government institutions very strongly held by Bannon. And this rapid uh, application of the executive order, which Republicans were so angry that Obama utilized, even though he utilized them far less than, say, Reagan or someone else. Um, you know, he. it is very interesting to see what the ramifications of this very fast and loose application of this these orders that obviously had 
far less, let's put it this way, it's very clear they had far less vetting from the appropriate uh, agencies than previous executive orders. Right. You know, from the agents, affected agencies or agencies responsible for their execution. Um, so, and this is not a politics thing. This is like a logistics thing. Or, a, or if you're looking at the government as a business, which Trump has said he does, it's very interesting to see this kind of business being conducted and what the ramifications of it will be. Given that we are a weekend and we're already exhausted, it is definitely going to be interesting to see how people maintain their vigilance that these things are handled according to the rule of law and according to appropriate procedure and process because fugue is a real thing you know i mean or fatigue is a real thing you know you just at some point you can't keep up it's so fatiguing that you've mispronounced it um i thought one of the most telling we're inundated and there's so much good writing that's going on it's hard to keep up with all of it um but one of the most telling things i did i actually noted this back in the campaign i remember this but there were a couple you know when it was clear that the steve bannon was going to be so uh or was so influential in his campaign and then after the election when he we found out that this guy won that he was going to be a top advisor um uh trump had been a guest on bannon's radio show uh, I guess it's not a podcast. I think it's on some kind of actual radio network. But uh, Bannon had a, a show, uh, and one of the times that Trump was on, they talked about uh, they were talking about immigration, and Trump was. This is where they differed. Where Trump was uh, arguing more or less that he wanted to make it easier for when uh, immigrants come and go to our universities and become experts in science or whatever other fields they are, that it would be better for the country to figure out a way to keep them here with their newly found U.S. Edu- you know, expertise than to have them leave again. And Bannon, you know, he was like, you agree with that, right? And Bannon's argument was that there's, you know, something to the, it didn't quite say it was a problem, but he, you could tell that's where he was going, that when two-thirds or three-fourths of the CEOs in Silicon Valley are from Asia or South Asia, uh, you know, that's a problem. And, you know... <laughs> Like I, I, there's no way to avoid it. I mean, either you, either you look at something and you see like, uh, uh, Sundar Pichai, who was born in India is the CEO of one of the most successful companies in the history of the United States. You either see that as a great success. I I mean, I, I just, there's no common ground. I see this as that Sundar Pichai is proof that the system works and that our country can be great. And Steve Bannon holds it up as an, you know, like a problem to be so that needs a solution. And I, I, I don't know. I don't see how. Yeah, we, I think you referred to it as a, cu- a cultural. Right. That, you know, it refers to our culture, that we right. have to maintain a certain culture. And then the question then becomes, you mean white culture? Right. Right. Like, do you mean, you mean that the European people who came over and killed off the natives, like those are the folks that are the best. <laughs> Excuse me. Those are the folks that are the best, and those those that's the culture we need to maintain. And um, you know, I mean, I think that you have to take that stuff at face value. Uh, and I think that was I think you you even wrote something about this, but um, you know, everybody that was saying even Peter Thiel said this. Nobody really believed him at the time, but it really looks pretty uh, gross in retrospect. You know, in, in terms of a gross miscalculation or, or gross dissembling. Um, of the truth and that is that you know you don't take him literally right right don't take trump literally uh take him at his his intent not his word or whatever the you know saying was but it's become very clear that you have to take this stuff literally so if you look at statements like that you go okay well you know if this person's uh 
you know, policies or whatever are enacted, then, um, you know, their goal is to create a safe space for white people in America and then to, um, you know, uh, destroy as much of the current government establishment as possible because they view it as corrupt or unnecessary. Um, because he he says he views himself as a, a Leninist or whatever, and, right. and he'd like to just this is Bannon, um, yeah. like to to tear down as much of the go- existing government as possible. So you look at things like that, and you can look at them. Hey, you know, oh, I'm I'm intellectually curious about what this person's views are, and you know where this gentleman is coming from. Uh, and then you can look at the stuff that's happened in the last week, and you can go, oh, maybe I should take this as a statement of fact and not a statement of philosophy or a, or game theory. Yeah. And I think that that is a very scary proposition. I have so. a theory on that front. Yeah. That, uh, uh, and, you know, it, it is as much a hope as, as a uh, – well, I can't prove it, but it's certainly what I hope uh, in terms of – the sustainability of this administration. Uh, it's a fact that according to polls, he's, he's the least popular incoming president in modern history, meaning in the history of like the Gallup poll and modern polling technology. Uh, and with just about every previous, or in fact, not just about with every previous elected new president, there is this grace period after the election where the, as soon as the election's over, here's the winner you know, congratulations. And the campaigning stops, there is a groundswell of support and their popularity grows. They enter office with an approval rating that is higher. This was true for Reagan. Mm -hmm. This was true for Carter, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, George uh, H.W. Bush. It's always been true. And it's not true with Trump. Trump's popularity and approvals went down between the election and starting. And uh, amazingly... (laughs) His Gallup approval rating went down eight points in his first week as president, which just doesn't happen. And again, it, I don't know, but I've probably lost everybody who's anybody who's listening who was a Trump supporter. But I, I don't. I think I lost him a while ago. But here's the hope for somebody who's opposed to Trump: is my theory is that Trump had a coalition of voters who half of them, let's say roughly loved every literal word he said. They wanted to lock her up. They wanted to build a wall. They wanted to make Mexico pay for the wall that they didn't want. Uh, They wanted to ban Muslims from the country. And then the other half were the, like the Peter Thiel type. And which is why I wrote about it, which is the, uh, you can't take this guy literally. He he says these things because they sound good. He's a showman. That's, he's not going to do any of this stuff. You know, it's just think of the vague intent, you know, it's, uh, you know, Teal's description. And it's so funny that he picked up on the, the ban the Muslims was that, uh, oh yeah, he just says that. But what he really means is they're going to have a sane, they're just going to have a saner, smarter immigration policy. Well, this, (laughs) this immigration policy is insane and it's not smarter. It's poorly written. It's hard to execute. I think what's happening with Trump's approval is that the people, the only people he's going to be left with are the group that wanted him to be taken literally and that the group who didn't want to take him literally and just assumed that he wouldn't are jumping ship because now they see that he actually is doing these these things. And I don't think that there's widespread support for them. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, there's, there's like a couple of... Um, there's a couple of accounts on Twitter sort of collating regretful Trump voters mm. who 
you know, expressing their, um, there's one today that's, you know, hundreds of tweets long, sort of before and after uh, tweets. The first, it's like clipping the, I'm afraid I don't remember the account right now, but they're clipping the before tweet, you know, when they're like, oh, Trump is going to X and Y and, you know, trust him. And then the the after where it's like, he's not going to do this at all. I'm not, now I'm not going to have healthcare or whatever. And I think that there is, there's a schadenfreude in that, but there's also like, when people say you have to see the other side and or, you know, cross borders to, to make that, it always seems like it's always one side having to cross those borders. But I th- honestly think there's opportunity there to not be like Nelson haha and be like, look, you were fooled. Uh, now let's fix it. Right. Mm. And unfortunately, you know, for many people, unfortunately for especially for people who are very solidly were very solidly hillary clinton Clinton supporters or whatever fixing it is going to end up with pence in power um i mean the worst case scenario is that you know for those folks is definitely bannon stays in power and implements his true strategy which he laid out very explicitly and you have to believe he wants those things because he's you know written and influenced all of the other stuff so far that's matched up one for one. Right. Uh, and so that's your worst case scenario. The, but your best case scenario is Pence, which, you know, Pence does not share liberal values at all. Right. I mean, <laughs> right. he's very far right. <laughs> you would consider him one of the farthest right if it wasn't for the Bannon Trump uh, conglomerate. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a, a rough four years, I think, for anybody. Well, rough two, maybe. If this groundswell of of disapproval and or you know activity or or activism is able to carry for two years you get into the the midterm elections and uh, maybe you know the checks and balances are back in place where some sort of middle ground is found between the two halves of the country literally almost two halves of the voting public right um you know, so it's it's definitely it, it's at times like this where you realize just how important to the balance of the force, so to speak, those checks and balances are. Yeah. When they're not there anymore, it's it's a very sudden cold bath. You know. Yep. And uh, you know, I don't think we're at the end of it, and, and in terms of issues that will just pop up. <laughs> un, un, unexpectedly that draw uh, you know the industry that we cover into it uh, directly I mean there's going to be something right. I mean for example I mean I mean, Trump was harping about it a year ago uh, with the San Bernardino case and uh, Apple's studied refusal to to give the FBI a, you know not to go down that whole story again but you know they didn't want to uh, give them an OS to unlock the phone and, and it's going to be a little different when when Trump is the president instead of just the candidate and he's fighting back against it. So I'm sure we'll, we'll go down that path again. But yeah, I mean, cybersecurity is the next big thing. So we'll see. All right. Briefly, because I know we've gone oh, on for but a Giuliani's while. in charge. So oh. we're fine. <laughs> One last thing I just wanted to touch on is that you, uh, I don't know how many years now you've been going, but last week you were at Sundance in Utah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I so tell me about it. Tell me, you know, you, you, it seems like you really have a good time out there. Yeah, so I mean, I haven't, I haven't been going as long as some folks. I mean, obviously, it's been going on for decades, but um, I started going in 2013, 2012, 2013, somewhere in there. So for a few years now, I've been going every year, and um, 
I like it a lot. I mean, it, it's, you know, I, I like everything about it. There's You go to this town in Utah, it's Park City, which is, this Sundance is, uh, covers Salt Lake City, Park City, and a couple of other small venues like Robert Redford's house and personal screening room and <laughs> um, some other things. <laughs> yeah, he's got a whole conclave up there. The dude basically just owns his whole town. It's really funny. Um, but it, it's a... You go, it's in the snow, there's nothing else to do but watch movies and eat. Um, you're, you know, you're kind of locked in. I mean, you could ski and stuff. I never do. I always tell myself, oh, I'm going to, you know, take an afternoon or whatever. But uh, there's always seems to be something to see or something to do. Um, but you go and you're snow locked in this little town. Everybody there is, is there to see movies. Uh, there are like 60, 70 movies that play every day across all the venues. You can only see three or four of them a day. I mean, that's if you pack them in. Yeah, right? how, and how do you decide? Um, how do you, I mean, what do you do? Do you get like a, is there just like a, here, you get like, you, you, you get like a pass and here's a list of all the movies and you just go through and, and pick them? Yeah, it's different for pass holders. So if you're a pass holder, you buy a package, which gives you access to certain kinds of tickets and so many tickets a day or whatever the case, right? And you know, those pass holders get some nice perks, like they get to go in and seat, get seated first in a theater and whatnot. But I go as press um, because I do cover a variety of things. Like last year, for instance, the um, the documentary, the Werner Herzog documentary on, on uh, the internet, you know, and the kind of impact of the internet. Uh, was showing there, so I got to interview him and and wrote about that for TechCrunch. And so I, when I in they more and more stuff there is interactive with VR and AR versus just films. So when I go, I always find something to write about for TechCrunch, um, and it's it's fun to go as press because you get uh, you sign up, you get your press pass. Your press pass allows you to see any press screening. They have essentially one four theater multiplex where it runs press P&I screenings all day, so press an industry. So you can go to any of those, just get in line and go in and watch those. Uh, and then you can also waitlist for any movie throughout the day. Uh, waitlisting is essentially they have a little app, and you you uh, when the waitlist thing turns on, you hit go, and it assigns you a number. And so the overflow seating, which they have between 40 and 100 to 200 seats on every theater assigned to the waitlist, you could possibly get in if you don't have a ticket. Um, you buy your ticket for $20. So each movie ticket is $20. Uh, and then you go in and see this movie that nobody's ever seen. So it's kind of a good deal for like local residents and folks that don't have ticket packages. But for the press, you sign up, you get your app, uh, your press pass, which allows you to do all of that. Then you get 10 free complimentary tickets over the course of the show. And then you can request between one and two tickets every day uh, via the press office in the morning. So everybody rushes down and you know says, oh, I want to try to see this or that. And they sell out of those tickets once they sell out and that's it. So in general, like this last time, I don't, I, haven't, I don't have my stubs in front of me to count. But I think I saw, I got there Thursday and left Tuesday morning. It was a short trip for me. And I saw, I think, 20 movies. In that space of time, wow. and then a bunch of VR exhibits. So, hmm. I mean, you pack it in. You know, you're there. You might as well. You know, yeah. I mean, I do anyway. You know, different people handle it differently. The film journalists usually stay there for a week or even two um, because it's, it runs two weeks, and that second week is or second weekend slash week is great because nobody's there. I've gone in the second week some years, and you know, it's it's purely about the movies like the stars have all left to go back to their lives or wherever in the first week every show you go to uh the director or the actors or 
everybody involved is there. Uh, you get to see it essentially with the people that made the movie, um, including down to the grips and camera guys and whoever else came. Uh, and then there's Q&As after every movie. So you get to kind of you know, talk to the filmmakers about their motivations and all that stuff, uh, person to person right there. So it's pretty fun. Uh, what, what was the best movie that you saw? Do you have, can, you, can you pick one? Do you have a handful? Yeah, I'm going to write about it too. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a couple that I found really good. I mean, there's a couple that are non-tech related that I saw while I was there. Uh, uh, the Big Sick, uh, which is Kamel Nanjiani. Um, he he uh, wrote that with his uh, wife about their experiences. Kamel's uh, one of the guys from Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, he's uh, he plays one of the programmers. Uh, very good, and you'll you'll hear about this. I think Netflix bought them actually, so you should be able to watch it on Netflix. I don't know if they're going to release it theatrically or directly on Netflix, right. but. Um, Netflix and Amazon were big, enormous presences there. Yeah. They bought a ton of movies. Hmm. Um, this is like for 2013, um, there was just like rumblings that Netflix is like poking around, like there are people here. And then year after year, they got to be a more and more of a presence until this year. It was like, you know, they were they were some of the biggest purchasers at the show and they were on everybody's lips. And many of the movies that premiered there had already been pre-purchased by Netflix and things like that. So it's, you know, our, my world was colliding with with Sundance's world yeah. at a rapid pace over the last several years. Well, um, and it's got to be, it has to be from their perspective, a lower risk way, because these are movies that are already made, you know, that in it, you know, I, yep. that you could say, look, I, you know, yeah. and, and there's some subjectiveness to it where obviously whoever it is from Netflix is watching the movie and saying, yeah, this is good. You know, and making a subjective judgment that this this is a good good movie or good enough that we should think about buying it, but then once they do, that the risk is so much lower than backing something. Bef- you know, when it's just a screenplay and there's so much uncertainty, and uh-huh. you know, who are you going to get? Who can you cast? Is it going to come together? You know, uh, so yeah, it you doesn't have a sort surprise of fixed me at all. Price, right? Right. And like last, uh, every time I go, one of the, my favorite things to do is when I'm in line, I just talk to people because in general, these are film industry people that are there. I mean, they're fans too, right? Just folks that want to see movies. But like I talked to, you know, Academy Award winning producers that are just standing in line and we just have a discussion, right? Because they're waiting to see some new thing and they're like, oh yeah, here it's great or whatever. Um, and, you know, I talked to them about their next project and about the industry and blah, blah, blah. And like I talked to buyers and, and producers and when they're talking about Netflix um, and Amazon, they're talking about like I asked them, hey, is this a challenge to you? Is it like, do you view it as like an invasion or whatever? And they're, they're you know, in general, the response has been very positive. Hmm. I mean, they're like, hell no. For us, it's like a way to tell a filmmaker, look, you can use these people to make your next movie. In other words, sell this movie. You're not going to, you know, be rich off of it or whatever. You're going to make a, a decent deal because neither neither Amazon, I mean, Amazon and Netflix are overpaying right now for movies simply because A, they have the money and B, they're, they're sort of trying to build momentum. Um, but they're also enabling filmmakers to just boom, like sell that and then make another movie, right? Like you move on to your next project and then it allows them to build a body of work. And it's just like a new plug and play distributor that they're able to just go and say Netflix comes with their corpus of data and says this is what we know works Uh, Amazon comes with their deep pockets and says hey we're going to release you theatrically like they're different playbooks there's not they're not just like bland entities that handle things the same way you know they definitely distribute them very differently Um, but new opportunities you know for filmmakers Uh, any other movies you want to give a shout out to other than the big sick yeah Marjorie Prime 
I really, really liked it. Um, Marjorie Prime is a a movie um, that stars uh, um, John Hamm, mm. um, Gina Davis. Um, who else? Uh, Tim Robbins hmm. uh, is in it as well. So I mean, like you know, all all star uh, cast. I mean, it's directed by this guy named Mar- uh, Michael um, uh, Amareja, I think uh, Amareda. I'm, mm-hmm. I may, might mispronounce it. He, he he directed Hamlet. I don't remember with, with Ethan Hawke. Um, yes, way, I do. Back. Yeah. But um, yeah, the movie stars Lois Smith, and Lois Smith is a very venerable actress. You you have seen her. Um, you know, it, you, you listeners out there, you have seen her in something. Trust me. Um, but, but she, I don't know if you remember East of Eden. Yes. Um, with uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, she was in that. Like she's been in in the biz a long time. You know, I think she's. Uh, 80, 85, 86 now. But she was in, you know, she's been in tons of stuff that people have seen, like Fried Green Tomatoes and Twister and, you know, True Blood and all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. But she played, the, she plays a character who is losing her memory, either via dementia or Alzheimer's or whatever. Uh, and her family, and she played this same character in a stage play written by the guy who, you know, they adapted the screenplay off of. Um, and she's played that character twice in two runs of that play and then he directed uh, this director directed her in this movie version of that play and she's an older woman who's losing her cognitive ability and her family purchases her an ai called the prime and that prime is there to talk with her and to help her to keep those memory pathways active right yeah. to help her relive her life and 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 talk about her memories. So John Hamm plays her husband in his younger state because that's the way she wanted to remember him. Uh, and the prime is set up to engage with her and ask her about her life and to learn. So when she talks to it, it learns about her life, essentially learning to be more human and more like him. Uh, but the themes, obviously the AI you know, component of it is a huge portion of the theme, but the themes I found absolutely just spellbinding. I mean, yeah. I I was barely breathing by the end of it, and it's not a very, it's not a thriller by any means. You know, it's an extremely calm, meditative movie um, that I found to be extremely well acted, full of nuance, and addressed addressed some really, really, you know, interesting topics about AI, the way it will affect us, you know, the way that humans can sort of impart their being to AI in the future or may impart them if it ever gets to that point. Uh, you know, it's very, very interesting. Sounds Highly recommend checking it out when it comes out. I think maybe Netflix bought it. Sounds so right up my alley. I, I feel like we're entering a gold. Yeah. Like it's, as Hollywood devolves into nothing but sequels to franchises uh, and three hundred mm-hmm. million dollar budgets, and the expectation, you know, that it, the last two thirds of the movie is going to be blowing up a city every single time. Uh, right. We're entering like right. a, a a golden age of of smaller budget, you know, what used to be called indie movies. I don't know what you want to call them now, but you know, outside Hollywood and outside yeah. the blockbuster mindset of science fiction, uh, and a lot of them. I mean, and you know, it's no surprise that we're that people are thinking about AI because it's starting to to get real. And it's so great. It is so refreshing yep. to see movies about AI that have gotten away from AI that goes bad and takes over the planet. Yeah, right? Exactly. That's what. Yeah, that's what you normally see. And I mean, I the one thing, one thing I will say. This might be an interesting to to people listening is that the mood at Sundance this year. I mean, I like I said, I'm not you know I'm not claiming to be some historian of Sundance, but the mood 
this year compared to years past because remember the inauguration was happening uh, on that Friday the, of the beginning of the festival yeah. uh, and all of this stuff started happening you know like there's these the first uh, executive actions and stuff started being passed and, and all this and people were realizing just how much Trump was being going to be the Trump he promised to be uh, and the mood at Sundance was insane I mean it was somber and mm. meditative and defiant and you know it was artists being artists yeah. you know just saying like we're not going to give up the light we're going to push and we're going to tell stories and we're going to help unify via those stories uh you know redford and various programmers made comments as i was sitting in you know screenings and things like that about telling challenging and difficult stories and not letting up on that it was just seemed very very interesting very very unified in its in its emotion you know yeah. and then years past it was, it was all over the place you know people have different thoughts and feelings but it seemed very very interesting to me so it'll be interesting to see how artists and filmmakers and people like that react over the next several years yeah well it's nice to talk about something a little bit nicer than uh uh trump but it's it inevitably it came back to trump <laughs> uh, <laughs> matthew <laughs> Uh, my thanks to you for your time. This was a great discussion. Uh, everybody can uh, find you on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? <clears throat> Panzer. P-A-N-Z-E-R. Uh, and of course, your good work uh, as the editor at TechCrunch. Uh, keep up. Keep up the good work. My thanks to our sponsors this week. We had Squarespace and we had uh, Audible and our new sponsor, Ministry of Supply. Uh, so my thanks to them and my thanks to you. Adios.